This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 10 Lad, we pay our debts. We owe you a good dinner, at least, if you want to know the truth. He grinned and leaned down closer to her. I wouldn't be surprised if the boss man offers you a job as inspector. That'd be the life, don't you think? Ride all day long, get off at stations, look around, see how the maintenance fellows are doing their jobs, looking for shortcuts and short-shifting, report on how the rest of us do their jobs. Why would you give that kind of job to a boy? McPherson didn't notice you noticing the steam leaks, I figure, or he would have fixed things or done something worse, like you said. Nobody notices boys. Some of our best inspectors are old ladies working on their knitting the whole while. That's true, S. grinned, remembering the ladies she had given her seat to, and how that had earned her a cold drink and a better seat. The stoker patted her head, gave her a shove through the washroom door, and announced he was late. He ran, heavy boots pounding on the wooden boards, before S. could reach back to close the door. She took the time to rinse out her filthy shirt and peeled out of her trousers and gave them a good shaking to get as much coal dust as possible out of the fabric. S. laughed at herself in the polished brass sheet mirror before she washed. Her face was dark gray, with pale circles of clear flesh around her eyes where the goggles the engineer had loaned her had kept her skin clean. With some regret, She put on her clean shirt, tucked her still damp shirt into her bag, and headed around the back of the station to the ticketing area. This station was large enough to have an indoor waiting area. Maybe she could find a private corner where she could spread out her shirt to let it dry more before her next train departed. The man at the ticket window was short and spindly looking. He had to perch on a stool to reach over the counter and hand tickets through the cage bars. He couldn't have been more than 23 or perhaps 25, his hair slicked down and his tie tied in a precise knot, and his posture on his stool was perfect. S. cringed when she got her first look at him, expecting him to treat her in just as prissy a manner as he looked. "'You're Joshua?' he called, frowning so his forehead filled with wrinkles when she approached the ticket window. For a second, S. almost forgot the false name she had given the conductor and the others." She nodded. To her amazement, the constipated look fell away entirely, replaced with a wide grin, and he reached through the bars, offering his hand to shake. Pleased to meet you. I hear you're helping to put the final nail in that rotter McPherson's coffin. Oh, I think it was obvious enough he did it, without me pointing it out. I just helped find the problem faster, so the train wasn't so late. Maybe so, but you're still a hero. Wouldn't be surprised if they don't offer you a job. The big bosses are always talking about needing sharp eyes and sharper minds, and they don't much care how old you are or whether you wear trousers or a skirt. Once all the hoopla over airships dies away and people settle back into common sense, trains are going to be the hearts what pump the lifeblood of this country. So we need to prove we're the best passenger line of all before that day comes. Am I right or am I right? He spouted more fancy talk like that, in between inviting her to sit inside the ticketing cage with him and sharing a cold bottle of lemonade. 
in between hearing about the trouble MacPherson and rotters who think just like him had caused the railroad line, S. learned that Archie, the ticketing agent, was the nephew of one of the owners, and he was working his way up. She guessed that despite his connections and his fancy talk, he was well-liked, simply because of how he treated her. With twenty minutes before her train to Indianapolis was due to leave, Angus, the conductor, came running to S. with a certificate. It had a red wax seal and was signed by Mr. Armbruster, a member of the board of directors, who was at the Dayton station on an inspection tour. The engineer and conductor had been holed up with him the whole time, reporting to him. The certificate granted Joshua Lewis first-class passage on the train line, all the way to Springfield, and half-priced tickets for him and his brother for the next two months, wherever they wanted to travel. On the back of the certificate was a written offer of employment for Joshua and his brother, if they were of a mechanical mindset, once the brothers were reunited. It wasn't that much, S. protested, fighting not to let her hands shake and wrinkle the certificate. I just did what was right, what my granny would want me to do. Not many people as should have that kind of mindset nowadays, Angus told her. Your pa was a veteran. War orphans deserve our help and our gratitude, the big boss says. And like Archie here probably told you, we're always looking for sharp eyes and loyal hearts. She still stammered her thanks when Angus gruffly pointed out that she was wasting time and would miss her train. He cuffed her gently across the back of her head, nearly knocking her cap off, and trotted with her all the way to the train, where he guided her up the stairs into the first-class compartment. Then he handed her a canvas sack he had been carrying. Not quite the fancy lunch we promised you, but it'll serve. He winked, grinned at her stumbling thanks, and hurried out of the carriage. Just a few seconds later, the carriage jolted and the engine whistle shrieked, and S. settled back in her comfortable seat. The sandwich was massive, enough for two meals, heavy with slices of chicken and soft cheese and a spicy mustard that bit at her nose. The peach was as large as her fist and juicy enough she didn't need anything to drink. The conductor who came through the car twenty minutes after leaving the station was a young man, around Archie's age, and seemed to know who she was. He winked and gestured for her to put away her ticket and the certificate while she was still pulling them out. I am going to be quite spoiled, she mused. Odds are against me being rewarded so well every time I do something right. Is the world really such a nasty place that people make a fuss over those who do right? She sighed and settled back in her seat to watch the landscape speeding by the window. Granny, I hope I always make you proud of me, even if I end up being punished for doing what's right. In Springfield, an ambitious project had captured the imagination of the entire city. Tower twenty stories high, to be serviced by the newest design of steam-powered elevators. It would serve as a docking tower for two airships at a time, with ramps to allow passengers to disembark without having to land the airship. Part of the tower would serve as a hotel, while the other would house government offices. The tower was actually two buildings, with an open space between them, connected every third floor by an open platform that would support gardens and open-air cafes. S. found the whole concept fascinating. She took a job with a dozen other boys hired to haul sealed buckets of drinking water up and down ladders all day for the construction workers. Naturally, she was expected to haul more than just water, but she didn't mind, 
because the construction workers took the boys under their wings, watching out for their welfare, paying them to run errands for them, haul their wash to the laundry, or buy them a plug of tobacco, or order a hot meal for them to pick up on the way to their boarding houses. The elevators were installed before the final two stories were enclosed, and S. was scolded just as often as the other boys, and many of the construction workers, for stopping often in the course of her errands to watch. The coils of cables and piles of pulleys and the massive engines in the basement of the building and miles of pipes captured her imagination. She tried to calculate what kind of power would be required to keep the elevator running at peak calculated speed. A team was training to monitor the boiler and the mechanisms full-time during the installation. The few times she overheard the instructions and the questions the workers asked, she decided she wouldn't have such an exacting duty for all the money in the world. Essa's evenings were spent roaming the city, listening to the gossip, the rumors, asking questions. There was no sign of her brother. She wasn't entirely disappointed. At least Yuli hadn't been caught in one of his escapades. As fall approached, she reluctantly admitted she needed to decide where to go next and what she should do to find work. Soon the skyscraper construction would be finished. Should she stay in Springfield and find some sort of work? Maybe hawking newspapers? driving delivery wagons, acting as a courier for businesses, or some employment that would put her indoors in inclement weather. Thanks to the extra money earned running errands for the construction workers and the cheap, clean little rented room barely big enough for a bed, she had been able to save almost a third of what she earned. The day the water boys were dismissed, they were all handed vouchers, allowing them to come back on the day of the dedication of the building in two weeks' time. They would be allowed to perch on the garden level of the third floor and look down on the ceremonies in the square fronting the tower. The owners of the building were delighted and proud to announce that President Abraham Lincoln himself had agreed to return to Springfield to dedicate the building, which would include a memorial for his late wife and young son Willie, who had died while in his first term of office. A chance to see Abraham Lincoln was reason enough for S. to linger in Springfield, and pass up a job offer that would require her to go to Missouri. One of the boys she had worked with had an aunt who ran the laundry at the largest hotel in Springfield, and chances were good the president would stay there. S. gladly went to the hotel with Roger to apply for work in the laundry under his aunt. They would get that much closer to the president than the other boys in their work team. She learned young boys were made for filling in a dozen different odd jobs every day in hotel operations. She ran errands for everyone on the staff. Right now, with the weather pleasant, she didn't mind. When winter came, however, she hoped the hotel would either provide her winter clothes or fare to take a streetcar. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. This is your invitation to explore the Commonwealth Universe. The Journey of a Galaxy-Spanning Civilization, from its downfall into barbarism to its climb back to the stars. Dozens of worlds to explore and races to follow in the struggle for survival. From shapeshifters and immortals, planet pirates and colonists, to heroes and explorers, there's bound to be a story you'll enjoy. Come explore this constantly growing universe of over 30 titles with more to come. From Michelle Levine and Writers Exchange. mlevine.com and Writers Exchange. 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com. And now, back to the story. Four days before President Lincoln's train was due to arrive, S. stepped out of the newspaper office after dropping off an order for ads and nearly ran into a man with a familiar face. At first, she couldn't place where she had seen him. He turned to one of his four companions, all dressed in rusty black fine clothes, and made a comment, his face twisting into a sneer. She remembered that expression from the tunnels below the school grounds. S. recognized the other four men. All of them were resurrectionists. All had escaped the raid led by Agent Sutter. What were the chances the resurrectionists were here by mere coincidence, rather than in anticipation of President Lincoln's visit? She gnawed on how to get warning to someone with the power to either stop the President's visit or increase his security, without jeopardizing her own freedom. It wasn't as if she could simply walk up to the head of hotel security and inform him that resurrectionists were in Springfield preparing to kill Mr. Lincoln. There was likely an office of the Secret Service here in Springfield. Being the president's hometown made it a target of the disgruntled and vengeful. The chances were very good an office or several had been assigned already in the new tower. Getting into the tower and finding that office and telling someone raised the same questions. Who would believe a boy with no credentials and no adults to back him up? Granted, Aunt Hazel had taken S under her wing from the day she started working for her in the hotel laundry. But what was the word of a laundry woman against five well-dressed men who likely had false papers and false names and legitimate business in town to justify their presence? S prayed twice as hard as usual in her morning prayers. And when she went to services the next morning at the little church, four blocks away from the hotel. Oddly, she lost some of her anxiety about the whole situation. Maybe she had come to the point of giving up and placing everything in the hands of the Almighty, and that sense of peace was actually just relief from giving up the burden? After all, why should she worry? The Secret Service had grown skilled in protecting the President. They had plenty of experience. The years of rebuilding the country after the war had churned up enough unrest to toss a veritable sea of lunatics and disaffected against the shores of Washington. Every time the president left the White House, someone tried to break through to hurl abuse at him, or bombs, or take a shot, or sometimes they just settled for throwing rotten produce. Three failed assassination attempts over the last two terms of office surely proved the Secret Service knew how to perform their job. As S. looked over the congregation from her perch in the little balcony adjacent to the organ loft, she mused that there was always a first time for a fatal mistake. Should she simply sit back and trust that having prayed hard, the Almighty would take care of President Lincoln? Or should she fall back on her usual tactics of disguise and sneaking and leaving letters full of information for the proper authorities to use? It was too bad she couldn't disguise herself as a man, she would need more than Miss Talbot's long-vanished makeup kit to help her pass through security and talk to whichever agent headed the president's security detail. No, she needed someone who resembled a Secret Service agent. Someone like that man sitting in the shaft of sunlight coming in through the side window. She had kept her eye on him during the service as the rising sun sent different colors of stained glass across his features. Right now, the light was nearly golden, instead of the splotches of blue and crimson and green that had covered his face until now. S. caught her breath as the man's features seemed to jump out at her. 
wouldn't it be funny if she could persuade him to impersonate a Secret Service agent? Specifically, Agent Sutter? A moment later, she threw that thought away. There was nothing in the world that could persuade a man who was a merchant of some kind, maybe a banker or some highly placed office worker, to carry on such a masquerade, especially so close to the president's arrival. He would consider it treasonous. A lone boy who approached him for the first time, even coming from the church service, could have nothing to convince him. Start over, Odessa, she muttered, as the preacher raised his hands, gesturing for everyone to stand for the closing prayer. She grimaced at herself, realizing she had missed out on the last twenty minutes of the sermon, caught up in her worries and plotting. Despite knowing it was useless, S. managed to exit the balcony at the right time to follow Agent Sutter's doppelganger from the church. No wife or children or colleagues walked with him. While he nodded to several people who wished him good morning, no one stopped him to chat, exchange greetings, or invite him for Sunday dinner. That was odd, she knew, because Sunday was the time for decorous courting under the careful eyes of parents. Handsome, prosperous-seeming young men were always invited to spend Sunday afternoon with the families of eligible young ladies. She had seen it happen without fail the entire time she had attended this church, and the man who looked like Sutter certainly fit the bill. She couldn't recall seeing him at church before today, so maybe he was new to the city, new to the church? Despite knowing better, she picked up her pace once they were out on the pavement and heading away from the church, toward the hotel, where she had to go on duty shift immediately after dinner. Odd that the man was heading there. Unless... S. grinned at how her heart picked up speed, and so did her feet. Following her intuition, she crossed the street and hurried ahead, so she could stand and lean against a gas lamp pole and watch the man approaching her on the other side of the street. That man was not Agent Sutter's doppelganger, but Agent Sutter himself. S. ran ahead to the hotel, positive that was exactly where the Secret Service man was headed. Her plan unfolded in her head with delicious ease. All she needed now was to obtain decent drawing paper and pencils, and find time to draw from memory the five men she had seen on the streets of Springfield. Then she would slip the drawings under the door of Agent Sutter's room. He would have to recognize those faces, and from there she could leave the President's protection detail in his capable hands. The most difficult part of her task was to contrive to be in the lobby when Sutter returned, and checked at the front desk for messages. S. doubted he would be so foolish as to leave his key with the front desk clerk, as some people did, but rather carried it with him. She was right, but the small risk of getting caught standing in the lobby, watching guests, paid off. She saw the number on the box the clerk reached into, to retrieve several telegrams and hand them to Sutter. Interestingly, the clerk addressed him as Mr. Pierce, so even the Secret Service felt some need for deception and subterfuge. S. ran off with a skip in her step to her Sunday dinner with Aunt Hazel and Roger, and then a full day of laundry duties. Finding decent paper that would support a drawing was easy enough. The hotel provided fine quality paper for its guests. S. couldn't find a stationer's store to obtain the artist's pencils she wanted, but the hotel also opted for the highest quality in that small detail, too. She finished one sketch of the leader of the Resurrectionists during her supper break, and hid in the linen storage closet after her duties were over to work on the others. There was no use in going to her tiny boarding-house room and wasting time walking that she could use in drawing. Actually, 
Staying past midnight at the hotel suited her plan perfectly. She was able to slip up the staff staircase without anyone noticing her and walk down the dimly lit carpeted hallway to Agent Sutter's room in nearly perfect safety. There was always the night guard to worry about, but she knew the man on duty tonight. He came often to the laundry to share supper with Aunt Hazel, so the laundry boys and girls teased her about her sweetheart. Heart thumping, S paused two steps from the door of Agent Sutter's suite of rooms, clutching the carefully folded sheaf of sketches. She said a quick prayer, much like the others she had muttered through the day, that her plan would be enough, that her sketches were accurate enough, and that he would act on them and foil the resurrectionists. Taking a deep breath and holding it, she bent over to shove the papers through the gap under the door. Too late, she saw the strip of light under the door. Sutter was awake. S's heart tripled its pace, and she nearly tripped over her own feet as she backed away from the door. She strained her ears to listen for the door to open, for him to shout after her, but her heartbeats blocked all sound except the unnaturally loud thump of her boots on the runner down the center of the hallway. Somehow, she made it back to the staff stairs and down again without falling or raising an uproar. That close call convinced her that she couldn't follow her original plan of sleeping among the dirty linen until it was time to go to work in the morning. She had to get out of the hotel in case Sutter started a search for whoever might have slid the sketches under his door. If no one knew she was in the hotel past her working hours, then she wouldn't be suspect, easy as that. Nothing, she realized, as her heart seemed to jolt to a stop and she nearly slipped on the bottom step of the stairs, was ever easy. Directly in front of her, in the wide entryway where the hotel staff entered and deliveries were made, stood the night manager, Mr. Philippont, talking with two of the resurrectionists. In that moment, S. paused. He reached out to shake the hand of one man, and the other grinned at something Mr. Philippont said and clapped him on the shoulder. This was no polite inquiry for information. Besides, what law-abiding, polite citizen asked to talk to the night manager of a large hotel at one in the morning? Even if there was need, why meet in the staff area? S. felt nearly sick with a mixture of disappointment and relief. Disappointed, because she liked Mr. Philippont. He had shaken her hand when she and Roger had officially joined the laundry room workers. Just last week, he had commended them all on handling a mess made by a French family whose children had become violently ill from a surfeit of your filthy plebeian sweets, as the sneering father had stated multiple times before departing. Mr. Philippont had treated them all to chocolate bars, and they all had laughed when he noted that American constitutions were certainly stronger and able to enjoy just filthy plebeian sweets without any harm. Besides, Mr. Philippon's mutton-chop whiskers made him look like a chipmunk, and who could dislike a man who looked like a chipmunk? Relieved, because she had considered, more than once, confiding in him about the resurrectionists she had seen and asking his help in getting the information to the Secret Service. Up until this moment, she felt something like guilt at not trusting someone she liked. Thank you, blessed Lord, she whispered, once she made it up to the second-floor landing. She walked backwards with her heart thumping in her ears again, and no sign anyone had noticed her momentary appearance on the bottom of the stairs. S went down the main stairs, creeping as slowly and quietly as she could, in boots that suddenly felt as heavy as if the soles were bricks. Her back hurt from bending over, to present as small an image as possible. She still couldn't breathe easily when she made it to the ground floor, 
and crossed the blessedly empty lobby and slipped out the front door. What was she going to do? What if Agent Sutter showed those sketches to the management of the hotel? Would that halt the resurrectionist plot altogether? Would the night manager panic and follow Miss Van Hastings' example by throwing his co-conspirators to the wolves to save his own neck? Why would he need to save his own neck if no one told the Secret Service that he was in cahoots with the resurrectionists? Botheration, S. muttered, and a moment later snorted laughter at herself as she hurried down the darkened, quiet streets. She would just have to get to work a half hour early in the morning, get hold of more hotel stationery, and write a note to Agent Sutter to slip under his door again. She needed to do it before he awoke, and do it this morning, so he had time to work around whatever treachery Mr. Philippont had perpetrated against the President. Despite the shocks she had endured, S. found it amazingly easy to curl up on the comfortable, clean mattress in her tiny room and slide into sleep. She nearly didn't get her boots off, and she felt only a momentary flicker of shame that she was sleeping in her street clothes and hadn't washed her face. Her landlady took great pride in clean sheets, and S. felt she betrayed her by inflicting dirty clothes on sheets that were still stiff from hanging in the line and smelled of sunshine. Then sleep took her before she could get past that momentary bit of discomfort. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library.